people first organizations will win in the future of work. Your only real asset is your people. We, we all, all want, want purpose-driven work. work. HR-led organization is I'm sorry, but leaders don't lead empty desks and empty shop floors. Welcome to the People Strategy Leaders Show. I'm your host, Sri Chalapa, founder and president of Engagedly, and a serial entrepreneur in technology, films, and music. This is where we talk to people leaders, business strategists, and organizational savants about leading in the time of change. What is working, what is not working, and more importantly, what we should be thinking about. Stick around to the end of the show. We will reveal how you can be our next guest. And now, let's engage. Hello, and welcome back to People Strategy Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Sri Chalapa. Today, I have the honor of two-time top 100 HR influencers uh, list, Jennifer Brown, who's the founder and president and CEO of Jennifer Brown Consulting and host of Will to Change podcast, which uncovers true stories of diversity and inclusion and the author of How to Be an Inclusive Leader. Brown's workplace strategies have been employed by top Fortune 500 companies and nonprofits, as a successful LGBT entrepreneur, Brown has been featured by media such as New York Times, Bloomberg, Business Week, Forbes, Fortune, Inc., The Wall Street Journal, HuffPost Live, CBS, Fox News, and many more. Oh my gosh, I was running out of uh, <laughs> outlets there. So um, th- welcome to the show, Jennifer. It's a pleasure to have you. Thanks, Sri. Thanks for having me. And thanks for uh, placing me on the list, not once, but twice. That is incredible honor. Yeah, yeah. It's not normal for people to show up on our list uh, twice. So obviously you're not just in the top 100, you're probably in the top 25 HR influencers um, in the in the space. Mm. But, um, you know, I don't get to talk to a lot of DEI people on my podcast. Uh, I do have discussions around that topic. And obviously you're openly uh, LGBT and you're also um, a successful entrepreneur and you coach organizations and leaders on how to be uh, more inclusive in their workplace. I think, you know, what, my question when I was thinking about what we should talk about today really we've, I think we have made a lot of progress uh, since the Black Lives Movement started about, you know, two and a half, three years ago, um, really. And and there's been a lot more awareness. Um, but where do you see the gaps even today in the workplace? Oh, goodness. Uh, we are still, you know, the, the tendency now, two and a half years in, as you point out, is to go back to sleep you know, to return to what's comfortable, to not challenge ourselves and the systems around us, you know, to go back to what was before. And I don't think it's helping that, you know, there are leaders out there who are calling everybody back to the office, you know, it's sort of a, you know, a a groundhog day moment. And, but everything has changed, you know, everything has. And this was a a well-needed wake-up call, I think, through crisis and tragedy, of course, um, but it, but we needed this. We needed to be shaken out of the status quo and to really challenge this workplace that never did really work well for all identities. You know, it did not at all. In fact, it squandered, I think, um, the potential and the productivity and the engagement um, and the, really the purpose of so many of us in that system where we were maybe disregarded, where we didn't see anyone that looked like us, where we didn't feel like truly seen and heard. And so um, now we're just so much smarter about all of those factors. And I hate to see anyone go back to sleep because of what we've been shown. Um, Our responsibility and accountability really to not just our current uh, workplace, but that future generation of leaders is to build something better, to build something different, 
you know, something that really galvanizes all the talent and organization really unleashes the power of that. And, and knowing what we know now, what would we build differently? But, but we, what gets in the way, which I think is your question is we hate to change. You know, we, we have a lot of our, our egos are wrapped up in what we've built, what we're proudest of, how we've led in the past, um, what's worked for us, how organizations have been successful in the past. But we've got to know if we're a good leader that everything, the ground is constantly shifting under us and we're only as effective as we were yesterday. You know, our systems are only as effective as they are now and really even better for seeing into the future. What are we going to need to look like? What are we going to need to be good at? That's really, to me, the measure of both organizations and leaders who are going to make the, p- the pivot successfully. Yeah. So, you know, I was looking at your book. You just re- I guess released a new edition of how to be an inclusive leader, which is the copy here. If you have, if you can see the video, this is the, this is the copy of that. And so what led you to do a newer edition of this book? Yeah, well, 2019 was a long time ago in many it seems ways. Like maybe, it anyway. Maybe right. not chronologically, but <laughs> in every other way. Uh, you know, I changed. I think the the conversation changed. The appetite for the conversation changed the need for more specificity in terms of, well, what can I do? You know, I I get it. I want to be different, better. I want to evolve. You know, what does that really look like though in practice? So I wanted to retain the model. I know we're going to talk about in a moment, Sri, but I wanted to put like new meat on the bones. I wanted to flesh it out given the current state, given our current context, given uh, everything we should be incorporating from what we've learned. And um, it was such, I honestly would recommend this for any author to go back and really update your work. And mm-hmm. um, it, it, to me, it there, there are timeless aspects of what we write as authors. And then there are aspects that are very, I think, situational. And it was this really cool way to retain what was evergreen and what has become a really beloved four-stage model for learning but then to flesh it out differently. And so we added new stories, we updated, you know, current events. We, you know, we tried to keep it in this like delicate balance, I think of the timeless and the timely. And um, that's really tricky to do, but my hat's off to my editor at Barrett Kohler, who they've done 300 books, 400. I don't even know how many at this point, such tons of leadership books that are bestsellers over decades. And the advice I was given was, you know, try to make this evergreen, try to make this, timeless Mm -hmm. so that it speaks to any era that picks it up. And um, I certainly, I hope that I can write at least one book that becomes timeless in that way, you know, becomes that sort of super, you know, best-selling, but even more than that continues to impact generation upon generation. I mean, that would be the dream of my life. Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the things I really liked about this book, to be honest, is that you you have a four-stage approach Mm. to building an inclusive leadership and it's not like a 15 stage F, you know, so, so I'm <laughs> glad you. you simplified it for a lot of people out there. Uh, you know, you talk about, uh, you know, unaware, aware, active advocate. Can you talk about these four stages briefly for mm-hmm. the audience? Sure thing. Yeah, I wanted to make it simple, Shri. Um, it, it just feels like this work is somehow kind of mysterious and also triggering and creates defensiveness. And I don't think the confusion and the overwhelm helps us. Mm-hmm. It doesn't help us uh, evolve and understand sort of what does progress look like and how do I mark my progress? So the four stages are unaware, aware, active, and advocate. And I'll just go through each one briefly. Unaware is, you know, I'm asleep. I don't know. I don't agree. 
uh, you know, I might be an active resistance or I might just be really passive and sitting on the sidelines. I think it can be both. And I can actually even be passive because I believe, you know, I'm a good person and I'm equality minded. And, you know, maybe this is something, a personal belief I hold, but I would argue that unaware is a problem for leaders and organizations, because it means we sort of, we, we intend something, but we're not concerned with the impact and we're not even awake to the need for change. So if we want to move out of that, we awaken into the second phase, which is, which is aware. And that is the, the awakening, the opening up the eyes. It's the scanning the environment. It's beginning to collect information that we've never known or had, or wanted to know. Um, It's, it broadens our aperture and our toolkit. We learn about different identities. We learn about our own biases and our own diversity story. A lot of people I think are realizing their own like the depth of their own diversity story through the last couple of years too, right? And how they never talked about it, how they avoided speaking it, how they didn't even lead from it, like so many discoveries. And so aware is um, is that collection of information and sort of the, just the digestion of the meal, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, it can be very overwhelming. It can be a lot, uh, particularly if you've been living in a bubble and you're protected by various degrees of privilege and you're learning about identities that aren't yours and are shocking and you have uh, either regret, sadness, anger, all of those things, guilt, uh, but important to stay in un- unaware and kind of like live there. I mean, I still return there all the time for things that I need to learn, but then active is the next phase, which is phase three, which is okay. Now that you've opened that aperture, gathered information, how am I going to utilize it? How am I going to put it into play, step into the arena, begin to have new conversations um, and do the scary thing which is, I don't have the language for this. I don't know how to speak it. I'm afraid about how it's going to go. I'm not going to do it perfectly. Um, And so my advice in this phase is don't make perfect the enemy of the good. You know, understand that evolution is sometimes one step forward, two steps back. It's, It's incremental, it's experimental. And go back and read Carol Dweck's work, Growth Mindset, classic book. Mm-hmm. Uh, around fail, failing forward, like, you know, try, mm, don't do it so well, try again, learn, grow, and not be sort of fragile about the whole process. Um, because that's how we develop the muscle. Mm-hmm. Um, the muscle will be sore, but that's good because you're pushing yourself. And then a- advocate is the fourth and final phase, which is okay. Now I the muscle is strong. I know exactly how to deploy myself, my voice, my knowledge. I understand my, my place in the systems around me. I know how to push on certain things, challenge things, norms, uh, question things. Um, And I sort of have that intrinsic strength because I've developed it as a discipline. And, um, you know, I feel I'm advocate level in a couple identities, most of which I I carry personally. So I've learned how to use my voice. I'm strong. I'm knowledgeable. I know how to like, you know, make noise, but there's a lot of others that I'm not, and I'm still my own in my own learning journey. And so I think the way the way I present this is meant to be disarming and welcoming, and it's an invitation to you know look at ourselves where we are as learners. It meets people where they're where they're at, and it doesn't judge anyone to say, "Well, you should have known that." You know, why didn't you know that, or how could you get that wrong? That is never, I think, productive. Um, while it might be frustrating for some of us that maybe look at other learners and say, "Why aren't they better? Why aren't they further? Why aren't we getting more support?" Certainly that's a fair question, but, but at the end of the day, we got to meet people where they are and pull them forward 
and give mm-hmm. them something and a mechanism with which to do that. So that was really where I was coming from. And honestly, my goal, Shri, is to engage people in this that have never really been engaged. Like if somebody can pick this book up and say, this is the only book and the first time that anyone has ever written to me. That's amazing because we've got a ton of people who have so much to contribute, but for a lot of reasons have been sitting on the sidelines and that's just, that's not okay with me. And I don't think it's okay with them either. (laughs) Yeah. You know, one of the uh, big excuses I get, and there, I would say that a lot of CEOs I talk to uh, and the, in the executives, I think they have the right uh, intent, but they don't necessarily go about it in the right way to some extent, mm-hmm. I would say. Because one of the excuses we get, I think there was a CEO of Wells Fargo or some other company, I can't remember, who said that I just don't get enough resumes who, of people of okay. color or women in those roles or something to that effect. So how do you, uh, well, what's your response to that? And then how do you, how should a CEO then, because part of that is true, you know, when you are sure. applying for a job, you do get and uh, resumes of certain roles in mostly men in certain roles, mostly, you know, people of people of not not people of color in certain roles. Like, how do you go about fixing that? What is your advice to the, to the, those executives? Yeah, sometimes an exe- executives often actually have that that boo boo moment, you know, that moment where they just say something totally tone deaf. Um, it's like the CEO of Microsoft. I tell the story in the book yes. about his incident at Grace Hopper, which is a giant um, women in technology conference with thousands of women. And they say, what do we do about the fact that we're not getting raises and promotions at the rate that we should, you know, it's really difficult. What do you, what's your advice? And he says, well, just wait, wait for karma to take care of you. You know, good work is its own reward and it will get noticed. And that certainly, because <laughs> that did not go well. No, no. and that, and, and he did not at all prepare, was not prepared. Um, he answered from the heart, certainly vis-a-vis his own experience, right? Which had been very different in a system that was built to be more understandable by people like him, right? It's what a great aha moment. So he came, by the way, he came back beautifully from that mistake. And I think that's a big part of, of what I'd like to see, which is when you say the thing and you get the feedback and you have to undo, I want to hear like, what did you learn? Why did you say it in the first place? You know, what are you going to say instead? You know, what would you, what would be your advice be to other leaders? So I wish we could kind of see that. But when somebody says, I don't see enough to, you know, um, non-white, non-male, non-cisgender resumes. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I question sort of which ones, which resumes are making it through any sort of recruitment process where many eyeballs are reviewing there's name bias, there's education bias, right? Even, you know, Jose and Joe, same resume, but a half of Jose's resumes get like in the, in the trash. Um, and so literally we're like leaking out, um, all talent, like through every successive process in the HR world. And you can look at any business process and there's bias everywhere. Right. So by the time it lands on somebody's desk, that is not a representative sample. It has been biased in terms of the filters And um, so we've got to really, all of us at each level have to be aware of the biases in our systems and processes and in ourselves. And then we need to put metrics together where we hold ourselves accountable for a different outcome. And that can mean disappearing resumes, names from resumes. It can mean removing educational background in schools. It can mean removing gaps in resumes. I mean, people have deep-seated biases about this stuff and they don't even know, hence the word unconscious, that they are not giving this person a fair shake. So, 
Yeah, I think, you know, and also I would say, where are you looking for talent? You know, are you looking in the same pools? Are you, you know, are you still, and yes, the answer is we are still fishing in the same ponds and we're not truly committed to looking outside of what we've traditionally required for a job. I think that's another huge bias is sort of, you know, we've got this super chaotic changing world, but we're using a lot of the same criteria that we've used for years to kind of, you know, pass or fail, you know, candidates when, People, people are, are so brilliant in the way they approach work and problem solving these days, especially younger generation, like different tools, different toolkits, different mindsets. I've seen it on my team. I, I, I'm amazed. And so you got to also watch out for our criteria bias generationally. And I'll say our as a Gen Xer, like we have to be relentless in holding ourselves to a different standard. Otherwise, we're never going to get these candidates through to where they deserve to be. Yeah, and I think one of the problems is is also the the uh, the lack of privilege people have starts way back in from mm-hmm. elementary school, right? So some of these people who are really good candidates never got a chance to get past maybe even a high school or community mm-hmm. college. Um, the similar a similar person from a privileged quote unquote uh, background would have gone to you know an Ivy League with the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, intelligence and aptitude and whatnot, because they came from the right zip code, if you will, mm-hmm. right? So I, I, I like this chapter, This you write about this diving into identity, where you talked about this privilege walk, which mm-hmm. really illustrates that really well. Can you talk about a little bit about that? Because I you said number of years ago, and I don't know how many companies have actually done this even today. Mm-hmm. I, I certainly have not participated in any of them or heard anybody personally who has participated in this. Mm. Um, so I think this is a good exercise. Every company I feel should have uh, to yeah. some extent. Yeah. <laughs> it's painful and awkward and it needs to be facilitated really carefully. Uh, but it's called the privilege walk and it's it, essentially, it's a bunch of questions that are asked and you take one step forward or one step back, depending on whether you're a yes or a no. And, um, it really, you end up, you start in a line, but you end up scattered across a room and some people are in the very front or one side of the room and some people on the other side of the room and you, you pick your head up, you look around, um, there it's usually very emotional Shri, honestly, because people, it reminds some of us of how difficult our circumstances and identities have been, Mm -hmm. um, whether we've grown up in poverty, whether we're immigrants, whether we, um, didn't have enough to eat, whether we were the first to go to college in our uh, homes, or we grew up in abusive alcoholic, you know, home, or whether we had every socioeconomic blessing, like every opportunity we're told we could be anything, um, had, you know, books and books and books in our houses and were exposed to certain things. So it's, it's, um, it's fascinating and difficult for all sides, actually, in the exercise, I'll, I'll tell you as somebody who ends up on one side of the room, uh, except for a few questions, I end up on the very privileged end of the spectrum um, that's, that taught me so much about now my allyship and my allyship stems from the place where I can activate around everything that I've been given, you mm-hmm. know, and looking this way and I'm a white woman, uh, and I, I definitely, I look white and I am identify as Northern European ancestry, you know, but I'm, I'm cisgender, right? So, but I'm also LGBTQ plus I'm also female, so certain questions I answered around, do I feel safe, you know, expressing who I, you know, love to the person I love publicly? No. You know, do I feel safe walking around the street? You know, no. Um, have I, right. And I could go on and on. Yes. But yeah. there's other things, of course, that have really like tailwinds have sped me along in life. And I think 
what we've got to come out of that exercise with is deep appreciation and empathy. Um, we have to also come out with, I think, our, our allyship activated, which is, okay, so if some of us have a lot of power and influence in certain systems because of the childhood years and how we were tracked, what, how, what do we do now with all of that? And what do we do for purposes of leveling the playing field? And we talk about what access do you have? What, uh, who do you know? What kind of professional capital can you be sharing? How can you be uh, championing for certain, alongside certain people or ideas? Um, and I think some of us have permission to do that because of this unearned, maybe earned, but largely unearned way that people perceive like what club we're in or mm -hmm. what identity we're a part of. And they give us access. You know, I've had it happen to me, but I've also had it not happen to me. I mean, when I'm co-facilitating with a cisgender man, uh, regardless of his ethnicity, he may have a lot of male privilege that I that I don't enjoy. And aligning with him as my ally is a very powerful lift for mm -hmm. me. You know, mm -hmm. so I think it works so many ways, and we can't we cannot sit in this place that well, those people have everything, I have nothing. It's not true. You know, we all are this blend of different things. And yes, the privilege walk does that to us and pulls us apart so we can see. But I think that honestly, most humans have a have a real kind of variety of identities and some of which are maybe marginalized and some of which are, you know, bring a lot of opportunity for allyship. And all of that is so actionable, especially the allyship stuff. Like right away, you don't need to have special training. You don't need to go, you know, and, and make, you, know, you barely need to plan. You just need to be thoughtful about what can I do that is easier for me to do than for somebody else to do. And I need to go do that. Yeah. 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 Well, this has been very insightful. Um, so Jennifer, the last question here. So you obviously have a consulting practice around building more diverse organizations. Can you talk to me a little bit about, uh, just a little bit about your approach and how can organizations who are looking for that reach you and what type of problems are you really solving for them? Yeah. So typically companies, um, you know, they don't know what they don't know. Speaking of the continuum, they're in unaware and they're coming into aware, or maybe they're in aware and they want to get to active. <laughs> so this can apply to companies as well. And um, it's regard, we worked across industries. So it really is irrespective of industries, I would say. Um, and more and more smaller and medium-sized companies are actually beginning their DEI journey. So we get the call, you know, funny enough, you wouldn't think this is true, but we don't get the call coming out of crises usually. We usually get summoned in by companies that really want to do better. They want to mm -hmm. accelerate, right? They're already, or they're going through a lot of change, or they have a new leader who's really ambitious for their DNI, you know, roles and metrics and trying to, you know, um, get on the on the on the playing field, so to speak. So we get called to really invest in with the energy of a client and they want to go, they just don't know how to go and, and what to put in place. And we collect data and we give strategic advice. We'll actually build the strategy with them from the top down and the bottom up, you know, we'll, we'll institute diversity committees. We'll put things in place. We'll, we'll start employee resource groups. Um, we'll deliver inclusive leader training across the board so that everybody's kind of on the same page and working with the same vocabulary. So we do, and then I keynote and, and write, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm like the fire starter. So often I'll be out in front starting that conversation, right? Being that first voice that a company might hear and then, you know, getting everybody excited for the work ahead. And then I have a wonderful team that can kind of come in and build and execute that work. 
Um, so it's this wonderful situation I find myself in after nearly 20 years in this work that we can begin the conversation and we can follow it through like all the way through. And many of our clients we've been working with for over a year, two years, three years, as they've progressed and wanting to up the ante, wanting to, you know, set, you know, stretch metrics, you know, wanting to be better and faster. And and we love those clients that we can grow with and continue to ride alongside and bring all that, you know, wisdom from our world to bear for them. And um, yeah, so that's, that's basically what we do. And we have like many fortune 500, 1000 clients. Um, I've always been corporate but we have some nonprofits and wonderful academic institutions as well. Um, and really organizations are organizations. It's just a question of different stakeholders, right. names, lexicons, et cetera. Yeah. Well, thank you, Jennifer. It's been very insightful. Uh, one message I would give to the CEOs is, is diversity, practicing diversity and building that in your organization is not only the right thing to do, it's actually the profitable thing to do because diverse yeah. organizations outperform less diverse organizations. That's right. Um, so Jennifer Brown, uh, her book is How to Be an Inclusive Leader. Uh, thank you, Jennifer, for being on the show. Thank you, Shri. Thanks for having me. Shri Chalapa here. Thank you so much for listening to the People Strategy Leaders Podcast. If you are a successful leader or a people strategist who would like to be on this program, please visit engagedly.com slash people strategy leaders podcast. If you got something out of this interview, would you share this episode on social media? If you know someone that would be a great guest, tag them on social media to let them know about the show and include the hashtag PeopleStrategyLeaders. I love seeing your posts and guest suggestions. We are regularly putting out new episodes and content. To make sure you don't miss any episodes, go ahead and subscribe. Your thumbs up, ratings, and reviews go a long way to help promote the show and mean a lot to me and my team. Want to know more? Follow me on LinkedIn and Twitter at Sri Chalapa. Thanks for listening. We will see you next time. And thank you to Patrick Ramsey, sound engineer at Kalinga Production Studios for recording and mixing this show.